The Accelerator Podcast is here. I'm your host on tap, Monty King, inviting you to leave ordinary in the dust. Every next level of our lives demands a better version of ourselves. Our guests will inspire you to close the gap. What doesn't happen by design happens by default, so the content on tap is created for listeners to learn and grow. Visit us online at whatsontap.tv or find us on your favorite podcast platform. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, tap five stars and drop us a review. Hit the notification bell to never miss an episode and share your favorites to help others outrun the status quo. Let's get started. I'm excited to have Dr. Bill Kanaski on tap today. Bill is Senior Vice President of Litigation Psychology for Courtroom Sciences, Inc., and nationally recognized expert, author, speaker in the areas of advanced witness training and jury psychology and civil litigation. The disturbing trend in the transportation industry is the increase of frequency and severity from nuclear verdicts and and settlements. Um, And Bill is restoring the balance to the scales of justice by attacking the reptile theory with the mongoose method. And his outcomes uh, from his work are sending shockwaves through the country. And we are honored to have Bill as our guest today. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am a disruptor of the system. That's my job. And I, lo- and yeah. I, I, love, I love disrupting. And uh, it's going really well. Yeah, I was about to say, you're doing, doing a pretty good job. Uh, attracting a lot of attention, uh, yeah. I guess, is, is the right way to put it. So, um, you know, I, as we dive in, what I really like to do was get a little bit into your backstory before we get to today. Um, so walk us through a little bit on, you know, how we got to the, the mongoose method, I guess, is the high level end result. But take me back to your early days uh, when you first kind of realized that you could make an impact and, and how, kind of how your passion started for what you're doing right now. Yeah, sure. Uh, in the early days, um, boy, 20 years ago, it's my 20th year. You know, those first three years, trials were very common. And everything I was doing was a form of trial preparation. Uh, it was very different than it is today. There's so many settlements today. Uh, I believe it's 98.5% of cases uh, settle. Well, you know, back you know, back in the year, you know, 2001, 2002, 2003, in the early 2000s, uh, there were a lot more trials. And so I was constantly preparing clients for trial. And after doing that for a few years, what I had realized after going through um, depositions, deposition testimony, uh, deposition transcripts, deposition videos, was that a lot of the outcome at trial was really dependent upon how things went in the discovery process. So I was finding that, you know, wow, uh, really bad deposition testimonies coming back to haunt these clients uh, with the jury, you know, uh, at at trial. And a lot of the trial, uh, uh, you know, lopsided, um, unfortunately, right, lopsided, um, uh, results in favor of the plaintiff, I would often get called, like I wouldn't work on those. I get called afterwards and they would give me the list of jurors or contact information. So I was starting to break down nuclear verdicts 20 years ago by actually talking to the actual jurors on the, tr- uh, on the jury. 
And as mm. part of my, you know, roughly one hour, hour and 15 minute interviews with them, uh, we'd go over you now the key factors that were driving their decision making to side with the plaintiff and then to award high damages. And so many of these uh, had to do with the quality of the witness testimony from the defense fact witnesses, from their corporate representatives, uh, their safety directors, the, the key fact witnesses, um, you know, boots on the ground types of types of people. And I was seeing how important that was into jury decision making. And then when I got about five years into it, I started telling clients like, hey, wait a second. You know, if, if all these problems are happening in discovery, right, and these depositions are so bad, and then you're having to take that testimony and take it to trial, you know, this is really a losing formula. Why not let me fix these witnesses before the deposition so then you have quality testimony so when if, if and when you do get to trial, it's not going to be used against you. And you're going to have so much more leverage and clients bought into that system. So that's about 15 years ago. And, you know, just so much success with, with that kind of generic general system of early intervention leads to better outcomes. And that's where my passion really started because I started doing things a lot differently than my colleagues or my competitors and getting in rather than on the back end of cases, getting in very, very early and doing a lot of damage to the to our enemy right plants bar mm -hmm. and being able to get my clients to help them attain better fairer uh, more affordable settlements and then going to trial and and winning uh which was fantastic and then 2009 came and that's when the reptile theory was born and that was kind of a a nuclear bomb in itself which led to uh an even more aggressive plan uh by me which which you heard about uh, in the talk that you you saw me give in Nashville. Yeah, that it's all, all that's awesome, and it makes a lot of sense considering the training that um, that that you gave us the uh, a couple of months ago. But uh, and is that what triggered your passion to put an end to the reptile theory? So all that happened, and you you saw that there was a process, and I'm assuming because. You seem very process oriented, right? One thing leads to the next and you and it kind of builds up to get to the result. So you were actually doing the process, then the reptile theory hits, and then you something lit a fire underneath you to really attack that, right? Oh oh yeah. Oh yeah. So in the first two years of uh so nine so let's see, two thousand nine to like two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve, um, no one really knew what reptile was. No one knew how to deal with it. It was very new. So it took a couple of years, two or three years, start to figure out, okay, what the hell is going on here? Uh, and they kept mm -hmm. the secret as long as they could. And then uh, word started to spread. And so I saw this, and by the way, hats off to the plaintiff's bar and the reptile theory uh, uh, folks. I mean, they've been tremendously successful. They created a very, very effective system that the defense bar was not ready for and um did a really good job and continued to to do that things have changed we'll talk about that but when i saw that system and i was able to get my hands around it break it down i i, I reviewed hundreds of deposition testimony uh testimony uh transcripts um from reptile attorneys and broke them down to the molecule okay and was able to crack the code 
on what on what they were doing, the reptile trainers were doing with the witnesses. And then um, also within that time frame, I was able to review uh, and actually sit in on uh, actual trials and you know, read trial transcripts, uh, sit in on trials where I saw the reptile theory, uh, theory playing out. So again, so I broke that process down. Uh, then I accidentally, <laughs> accidentally uh, got my hands on the reptile training materials, which was gold, struck gold. Mm. So then I physically had with their blueprint what they were doing. Uh, so I was able to break that down to the molecule and essentially build a system to defeat it. And it, it's been wildly successful. But, you know, I'm a scientist. I'm a PhD scientist. Uh, I'm a clinical neuropsychologist by training. And uh, it's a psychological methodology that they're that they're using on, on many levels, both in discovery uh, and a trial uh, with jurors. Uh, everybody's misinterpreted it. That's a that's a, a different discussion. Uh, but the point was with Little Fire is like I I can take the number one thing going on, the most important topic in civil litigation, which is reptile theory, and I can build a system to defeat it every single time. That was really important to me. And so that's where the fire got lit, built the system. And then every stage that the reptile theory has evolved, I've followed with an evolution of my anti-reptile system. And here we are today making a lot of noise, creating a lot of waves and uh, um, doing some really good things for our defense clients, particularly in the transportation and trucking industries. Awesome. Awesome. Well, and also I, I probably should have led with this question, but for our, our listeners that may not be familiar with the reptile theory on a high level, could you just break it down for them what that means? So that way they can, you, you can kind of tie this all in for them. Yeah. It's, it's kind of confusing and it's still misunderstood by many, which is very frustrating considering that's 2023. Um, right. Well, let me, let me get, let me give you the definition of what reptile theory is from, from the plaintiff's perspective. Um, the people that generate this is their marketing pitch, that they can do things at trial uh, in a way, the way they present their story, they present their arguments, focusing um, on public safety, okay, safety rules that all corporations have to follow. They can activate this area of the brain called the reptile brain. And when that area of the brain is activated in the juror brain, that the juror will have no choice but to want to protect the community, protect their the general public, and side with the plaintiff, and award high damages to protect the community in general. That, that's the high-level sales pitch. On In other words, we have found a way to present information to jurors that's going to activate this part of the brain, and they're going to go into survival mode and want to protect the community from this bad company breaking all the safety rules. Okay. That's, that's so their playing. It's playing more to the emotional side than the fact side. Is that fair? Or that, that's that, that would be part of it, but almost the uh, instinctual protective mechanism in the brain that they refer to as the reptile brain. So um, as I read through their materials and broke this down, uh, and I'm a neuropsychologist. I'm a I'm a I'm a brain guy. I'm a brain scientist. Um, it, it was kind of laughable uh, because they've they butchered the neuroanatomy and neurophysiology. Uh, by the way, uh, again, PhD neuropsych psychologist. Um, there's no such thing as the reptile brain. That's a myth. 
Uh, that's something like 40 years. That's something like 40 years old. There's no reptile. If you go talk to a neurologist, go call your local neurologist and say, hey, where's the reptile brain? There's, they're going to laugh in your face. Um, it's an obsolete, but, but boy, it sounds really cool, right? Hey, there's this reptilian part of the brain. No, there's not. Okay. There's three parts of the brain. None of them are reptilian uh, in, in any way, shape, or form. And so their science was really, really bad. And they were just using that part as a, as a marketing pitch. Cause boy, it's a pretty sexy marketing pitch. Hey, we, you know, we can put on these arguments in front of a jury and you're going to activate this special part of the brain and they're going to want to protect society. I mean, hell, if I was a young plaintiff attorney, I'd spend 10 grand to learn that. Right. But then I broke it down and figured out that's not what is going uh, on here. Uh, it is a very sophisticated system that has both a discovery uh, angle where they are going after uh, witnesses with certain types of questioning to lock them in on these safety principles, um, which gets the witness in a lot of trouble and increases the value of the case. Uh, so they have a very, very uh, sophisticated attack uh, on the defense witnesses and discovery. And then at trial, uh, they are telling that story uh, to the jury. Uh, about the corporation, about they have violated all these safety rules, uh, and they're putting the general public in uh, in danger. But it's certainly not um, activating some part of the brain. What it is, it's it's the perception of hypocrisy. Meaning, during the questioning of these witnesses. They're asking witnesses, well, your company is required to do X and your company is required to do Y. And it's all relative to these safety rules. And all the company witnesses are saying, yes, 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 yes. And now they're trapped. And then the next phase is the plaintiff attorney then goes into the case facts and says, well, you, <laughs> you know, your driver or your safety department or your CEO, your, your HR director, whoever, right? Well, they didn't do all those things that you just said were that were required. Therefore, you violated your own safety rules. So it's the perception of hypocrisy, meaning, yeah, we have all these policies and procedures. We have all these things in our driver manual and our safety manual and procedures. We just don't enforce them and we really don't follow them. And so there's this perception of hypocrisy from the jury. And that's what makes the jury, the, trust me, the jury is not having some uh, neurocognitive realization or some part of their brain is activating like they're a robot uh, and they want to protect the community. That's not what's really happening here. What's happening is it's a very sophisticated, coordinated system, both discovery and trial, that the defense bar was very slow to respond to and they outmaneuvered their adversaries and they got a lot of big verdicts. It's, it's similar from an underwriting perspective on the insurance side as well. You know, when, when underwriters look at the company policies and procedures and it, it very specific, you know, we, we, our drivers, you know, can't have these violations, this many accidents, this many violations, et cetera. But then when you pull their company in the R's, it's there. Hypocrisy. Creates confusion. Yeah. And when anyone is confused about something that's whenever all bets are off right so um, oh, yeah and the, the jury it's an easy kill it's an easy kill in front of the jurors because again it's in writing it's in your policies it's in your handbook and then you put the handbook next to the case facts you juxtapose, you juxtapose those things 
and you're like, well, you, you didn't even follow your own internal policies, your rules, your guidelines. I mean, you didn't do any of that. And then that's what led to this accident. And that's a very easy sell to a jury. So one of the things I talk about with people in the transfers is you got to get rid of that language. So one of the things I do is help clients get rid of that language. So you're not setting yourself up for disaster and litigation. You know, all the safety stuff in the materials, the internal documents of the company, it all sounds really good. It's a treasure trove for a plaintiff attorney. Smorgasbord, right? Stuff, oh, yeah. it's, a, it's, like a, it's like a buffet for them. Uh, and they just help themselves to all this terrible language that's now going to be used against the company in litigation. So eliminating a lot of that is really step one of this process so that you're you're not a very attractive target to a to a plaintiff attorney well you, you know you you mentioned internal documents uh, then there's the external exposure through social media dumb uh, all advertising dumb. whatever so that just adds to it i'm sure right that's the second it's equally as damaging and so uh as you saw from my presentation so we do these presentations to the industry we bring we, we we take screenshots of their websites and we put them on the screen and we start picking on them like we're plaintiff attorneys like why are you putting this on your website and you see everybody in the crowd kind of putting their <laughs> hands over their yeah. face they don't want to be identified but we've helped we've helped hundreds and hundreds of companies take that damaging material which again sounds good hey safety is their top priority okay take that stuff off of your website because only a no one cares B, it's not even true. Safety is never the top priority. We could talk about that in a second. But yeah. it's only going to put you behind the eight ball in litigation. So that's the websites, you know, any social media posts, things like that. Uh, every, you know, If you have safeties are top, safety's number one, and that's plastered, that's painted across the side of your truck, you're, you're in big trouble in a deposition. You're in big trouble at trial because, again, A, that's not true. Safety isn't and never has been the top priority in any industry, much less tra transportation. Let's get that straight. And then number two, when you plaster it across the side of the truck or all over your website, now you're stuck with it. There's no middle ground on that. You, you've just raised the bar on yourself to essentially a level of perfection. You've taken out things like judgment, training, experience, circumstances, situations that's how this that's how our lives run that's how the world operates okay and instead mm -hmm. you've set yourself for this you set yourself up for what the plaintiff the number one thing the reptile plaintiff attorney has to accomplish is they have to establish a list of safety rules that your company must always follow and if you agree to those rules you've just eliminated judgment circumstances training experience right and you're implying that, yeah, there's this rule book we have to follow, number one. Number two, if you violate the safety rule book, bad things happen. That's number two. And then number three, they go, well, let's look what happened in this case where you killed a family of four. Well, you violated these rules. Therefore, you're guilty. Easy, easy, easy sell to a jury. And it works. So we have to do things. Uh, very early on in cases, even sometimes before a case with these policies, procedures, website language, advertising, to not set ourselves up for disaster in litigation and make life so easy for our adversary. Yeah, 
and that's such amazing, great information because to me, I talk about traditional versus intentional, right? And and traditional is like riding a razor blade. You're yeah. literally, if you just keep doing the same thing over and over again, because the industry does it or your peers do it, yeah, you're going to get ripped to shreds. So you've got to make a decision to get off that thing. So that way you can do differently, be differently and, and create your own identity in this whole process yeah. because the confusion makes you like everybody else. Yeah. And it's so easy. It's so easy for any plaintiff attorney. It doesn't have to be a reptile plaintiff attorney, but, but any plaintiff attorney, uh, when everybody's doing the same thing, then they can develop a system where they're doing the same thing and it works every time. And so uh, taking uh, a deep look in the mirror, um, uh, if you're a trucking company, really sitting down uh, with, with an attorney and maybe even somebody like me and going through your stuff and say, okay, let's pretend the lawsuit was just filed, right? How would a plaintiff attorney attack us? And boy, talk about a useful exercise, wow, very useful yes. exercise. Then you're like doing, you know, you're like when you want to shoot yourself in the head, like, God, why did I put that in the, why did I put that in our manual? Why did I use this language? And you know what the answer is? Because everybody else is doing it. Because exactly. everybody else is doing it. Okay. It's and this, this whole, whole safety, yeah, yeah, whole safety first thing is everybody's copycats each other. Well, you're right. Redefining yourself, redefining what your values are and really cutting back and watching what you're putting in your language is step one in this process and highly, highly effective because then it can't be used against you because it's the number one place that they go to trap you. Um, what the plants bar does. On a, on a, we, we've listed or we went over a few, but what would you say are the top maybe three to five common problems for a defendant in, in, in one of these situations? Like, what are the things like, I mean, obviously we've talked about their language or their policies and procedures. You're giving the plaintiffs an all-you-can-eat buffet to take as much as they want, yeah. right? Um, what would you say, and, and they don't have to be ranked, but if you could rank them, that'd be awesome. Uh, what are some common problems? Well, I think they're. I think they're all important. Uh, yeah, the the language of the internal documents and and, and websites and advertising. That's that's certainly um, number one. Uh, another thing, um, your your hiring practices. That's a that's a common area of attack. You know, what types uh, of people are you hiring? What what types of background checks are you doing? Um, are you hiring people that have criminal histories? Right. And I know we have a driver shortage and that's been a problem. Maybe you've been cutting corners, but I'd say how you're hiring people and what the criteria is and what your background checks are. Um, are I think that's, I think that's really, really important. And an emphasis, uh, an emphasis of attack. Uh, number two is not having a, what I call a litigation crisis plan. Okay. Mm. So I live in Florida. I live in Florida. My uh, hurricane season starts June 1st and it runs through. Well, it was, it was over in October. Now we're getting November hurricanes, but it runs through the fall. Uh, my family and I have a hurricane crisis plan. Okay. So when we know, Hey, we're in the path, it's coming this way. We have a preset plan. I don't have to go run in the home Depot at the last second, battling over jugs of water 
and pieces of plywood with my neighbors. Oh, no, 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 no. I have my tools already set. I have my supplies set. We've, we've predicted various circumstances, how we're going to handle it. I have all my extra batteries. I have my lanterns. I have all my storages of bottled water because it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Yes. And you can imagine some people that just moved to Florida. We had neighbors, right? They moved from New York and the hurricane's coming. And the guy's like walking his dog. He's like, hey, uh, so we're from New York. Uh, what do you think we should do for this hurricane? I'm like, dude, like you got 48 hours. He's like, well, I mean, like, what do I really need? I'm like, well, what do you guys like? Well, nothing really. Know. I'm like, yeah. so I'm like, do you have flashlights? Do you have batteries? Do you have what? And I'm going through my list. He's like, I don't have any of that. And so he has to, you know, hair on fire, panicking, running to the store. And when you panic, you make really bad decisions. So the, the, the point I'm trying to get across here is making a plan with your leadership, having a litigation crisis plan. So when you have that uh, litigation filed against you, you know what to do. There is a plan. Everybody's on the same page. There's no panic. And the plan takes over. Preparate, mm -hmm. you, preparation is invaluable. Okay. Uh, related to that, another issue is having an, which most people have, but you'd be surprised how disorganized it actually is. It could always be better, but having an, uh, an accident action plan, meaning, okay, one of our vehicles has been involved in an, a in an accident. What's our plan? We're calling our attorney immediately, right? We're getting the attorney to the accident site. We're dragging that attorney out of bed. We're getting that them to the accident site. We're interviewing our driver immediately and providing emotional support, getting their story, right? All these things, like that. the moment that accident happens, the clock starts ticking. Yep. And you don't want to let the plaintiff attorneys get the lead. Okay. And so what I see a lot, and I say this at every speech, you know, if you, I like football, I like sports analogies, you know, if you're playing a football game, right? So, so yeah. So uh, last weekend I went to the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars uh, LA chargers game. Oh, you Jackson were there. I was at this crazy game and Jacksonville's down 27 to nothing in the first half. And they have this miraculous comeback to win the game. Uh, 31 30 pandemonium. Great time. And somebody, one of the, my attorney friends posted it on LinkedIn and said, hey, you know, what a great story. Meaning, hey, if you're an attorney, even if things are going bad, you know, never give up. That was the whole thing. Like, that is the, she sounded like Jim Valvano, you know, never give up. Yeah. And I replied to that is like, okay, well, how about let's not go down 27 nothing, damn it. Like, why, <laughs> why are we digging this hole? Okay, you should have to come down, come back from 27 down. You shouldn't have to. <laughs> so meaning you, what you need to do is have crisis plans for accidents and litigation so that when something bad happens, the plan is already set. You've, you've thought about various circumstances. You know who to call. You know who the meetings are going to be with. You know what to do. So then you're organized and making really good decisions early on. Because, see, yes. in litigation, bad decisions early come back to haunt you later. And so having a plan for that stuff is really, really important. And then finally, which is something that we're, um, we, we have a new program out that a lot of people are utilizing, is 
educating your employees, ones that are most likely to be deposed, so people in your safety department and safety directors, uh, high-level corporate people, directors of HR, educate them on litigation, educate them on reptile theory. Before I, I travel all over this country. I did one two weeks ago up in Michigan where I talked to a group of 40 people at a couple different trucking companies that came together to educate them on this is what rep, none of them had cases. None of them. This was a, here's what the bad guys are doing. And I told them about the plans they needed to form. But I said, if I can educate you about this now, when bad things start happening, you're getting the ball. You know, you get the ball at the 25 yard line, right? On a touchback. Now you got the ball in the 50 because you're ahead of the game. Education and knowledge is power. So the more you can do now before you have the panic of, of a lawsuit, the better position you're going to be in the end. So what I'm saying with all of this stuff is when you're unprepared, uneducated, and making poor decisions, that's what ultimately is going to kill you in the end. All that can be fixed, Monty. All that can be fixed right now. So then when something bad happens, you're getting the ball in the 50 instead of the 25. You know, you know, what's interesting. You're, you're really talking about being proactive, right? I mean, this is the yes, difference. Not reactive like everybody else on this planet. Right. And, and one of the things that I, I notice on my side of the fence from the insurance carrier side is most trucking companies or, or transportation logistics companies, they they may not even have a copy of their insurance policy that they they purchased, right? And yeah. not only, you know, even if they do have a copy, I'll say that, they have never even looked at what their duties are in the event of a claim. So yeah. when something happens, it's your next door neighbor from New York. <laughs> yeah, they'll know what I, to do. Like yeah, and so yeah. there's a huge emphasis on, you know, for, from from what I do in, in my practice about, you know, you've got to have a protocol in place. So, yes. But that sounds like the foundation to get to your point with the litigation protocols and, and everything else beyond that. But you have to start somewhere. And so normally what, what we try to do is just say, look, we got to, your insurance isn't, I wouldn't even call it a policy. It's a contract. It's a promise to pay, Right. You pay this, they'll do that. They'll do this if you pay that. And a lot of companies are breaking their contract because they're breaking promises they didn't even know they made. Lack of organization, lack of not, lack of communication with your insurer, big time oh, problem. Yeah. And the the enemy takes advantage of it. And, and some of it is you don't know what you don't know. A little sure. bit of it, right? But there should be a, some sort of desire for growth and to get better, et cetera, which is what you're doing by coming alongside them is, is accelerating their development to the next level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the messages that I pre preach when I talk around the country. Um, I have my own podcast, the litigation psychology podcast. There's my plug. Uh, and yeah, it's mostly for attorneys and claims people, but I have a lot of people in the trucking industry that listen to it. They do oh, listen yeah. to it because they want to educate themselves. Well, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, I love I the love rant it. section. 
Yeah, we got to have a rant. I may rant. I may rant here. You before we're done, you never know. If you got yeah. one right now, just go ahead and let it go. <laughs> it's it's all about timing, Monty. <laughs> but but yeah, we're, we're so we're preaching proactivity. I mean, I and again, this is a terrible analogy. I'm just gonna tell you, this is a terrible, terrible analogy, and somebody's gonna get mad at me for it. But it is what it is. And again, talk about having a plan. Um, I have a child. Well, my, my, my one son is 21. Uh, my other son's 14. He's in middle school. Uh, you know, they have active shooter drills in middle schools now and high schools to, 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 to prepare these. That's as sad as that is. It's rough, but they have a plan and they go through these drills. Right. And that's about as, as proactive as, as you can get. Now I, I have sat down with, my family and my wife, and uh, this unfortunately does happen in our country. And I told my family, like, here's what I'm going to do if there's an active shooter. Okay, because there's there's three things you can do. You can run, and if you have the opportunity, that's great. You can hide. Uh, Good luck, but you can't hide, right? Or you can go after the shooter. I'm going after the shooter. I'm not going to be target practice, okay? And yeah, that that's a risk. That is a risk. But that's the way I see that particular situation. Now, maybe I don't want my wife running after the shooter. Maybe I want her hiding, right? But I'm just right. saying me personally. Right. And what I try to talk to all these transportation clients is to say, don't be, be a deterrent. Don't be the target, okay? There are things you can do to put yourself in a much better situation than sit there and do nothing and be the target. And mm-hmm. so all these things, there's so many things well before a case is filed that these companies can do to get there. And that's starting to catch on. Not as qu- I mean, I guess nothing happens as quickly as you want to. It is catching on. And then once the case is filed, now we're into, now we're into a different phase and we can talk about that. But the stuff going on now is where right. you have the most control. Take advantage of it. And protect yourself. Well, to, to relate it back to sports analogy, analogy, um, you know, offense is the best defense, right? It is. It is. So, and a prevent so, defense prevents you from winning. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so look, a couple um, other questions to, to lead yeah. into the next part. What kind of impact? have you made specifically for truckers or trucking so far in your estimate? Can you quantify that some way? It's, 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 it's really hard to quantify. Um, what I have been told by clients, it's really hard to quantify. I think it's impossible to quantify. My clients tell me that uh, a couple of things. Number one, they're settling cases at far cheaper, more economically palatable values because they're in such a better position as they enter negotiations for settlement or they're uh, approaching mediation because the testimony, cause we're training the witnesses, right? We, 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 the two things I do, I train witnesses to testify effectively and we do uh, mock jury research to uh, assess, uh, you know, vulnerabilities and assessment, you know, uh, assessing cases and to, uh, be able to do those two things early in the case puts our clients in the best position to settle the case. Cause trust me, you don't want to go to court unless you absolutely have to, you want to resolve the case. 
but they're resolving more cases at a better value because they have leverage. Mm -hmm. And the two ways they have leverage is their witnesses testify effectively at deposition, so it can't be used against them. And they do the jury research to know what their true exposure is. And with those two bits of information, make very, very, very good decisions. So that's that's number one, and that's the biggest thing uh, that that uh, that we're doing. Secondly, is when they are going to trial, now they're ready. Now they're ready because they've done all this upfront work. They're not entering again. They're not going into the trial down twenty-seven to nothing. That's how all these nuclear verdicts happen, Monty. Because they're going into the courtroom, the score's already 27 nothing before they even walk in the courtroom. That's how nuclear verdicts happen. The score's not 0-0 zero, zero at the start of that trial, okay? It's not, okay? So what we've been able to do is to level that playing field so when they are going to trial, having much, much, much more success than going in battered and bruised and weakened, okay, and just getting their clock cleaned, by a very, very sophisticated plaintiff's bar. They're very, very good. You'll never, you'll never hear me criticize the plaintiff's bar. I build them up because they're coordinated, they're sophisticated, they're educated, they're educated, they communicate very, very well. They have got their shit together. Mm -hmm. Oops, sorry so, about that. It's your podcast. No, I curse on my podcast all the time. Well, hey, I, I want you to be your true authentic self. So whatever that means, that's what I want. So, okay, you got you you got it. So, uh, just curious, you know, I, I know um, you do some witness training, and that's what you're talking about. Half of my have job. You, have you ever used um, a dog to help with anxiety or trauma? And I'm asking that because before we hopped on, uh, I subscribed to North Carolina uh, Lawyers Weekly, and one of the articles was talking about using a, a, a courtroom dog to help a witness with their anxiety. I, just, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on something like that. And if that's something you've ever used. Um, the answer is no. The answer is no. <laughs> um, let's back up there. Um, and I, I'm not going to quote research because I'm not terribly familiar with it, but I do know in certain populations that experience um, anxiety disorders, PTSD, that that is uh, one of the interventions that is known to decrease anxiety, okay, mm -hmm. and um, help people cope with trauma, loss, things like that. Um, I don't do that because even even though it does work with some people, uh, it's really inappropriate, I think, in any um, legal setting, and. There are other far more effective ways to do that from the, you know, psychological, clinical psychology um, things uh, and interventions to use uh, that are that are far more effective and are really what's needed. Because remember, what a what a dog does in that situation, or you see people walking around with the stress ball, right? They're doing that. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of things that people do. That, that's not solving any problem. It's, it's blunting an emotion. Okay. It's just a bandaid on something. The, the, the trauma still exists. Right. And so what I do, with many witnesses, yeah. So what I do with many of these witnesses, uh, because I have a PhD in clinical psychology 
is uh, there's th various therapeutic techniques uh, that I can use with them during our witness training sessions to help uh, accurately assess their emotional status, uh, do mm. some things with them to help alleviate anxiety, give them some homework and things they can do at home to further do that. And oftentimes, oftentimes we do tell um, the legal team, you know, hey, th this is the type of witness that probably needs um, uh, to be involved in the, the, the health and mental health care system. They need professional uh, help uh, to mm -hmm. deal with some of these um, to deal with some of these issues. I want that article. I want you to send me that article. Um, okay. Because I'm, in, I'm interested uh, in that. But emotion um, is the number one barrier to effective testimony by far, mm. which is why mm. I do this so much because that's my expertise, emotion and cognition. And emotion and cognition don't, don't mix. It's one or the other. Um, and so where you see a lot of these terrible mistakes being made, very expensive mistakes being made uh, at depositions, and then try, you know, depositions lead to nuclear, nuclear settlements are far more prevalent than nuclear verdicts. Um, but it's the uh, a witness not being able to control their emotions that impairs their cognition that then impairs their communication in their answers to questions. And they make a lot of terrible mistakes. So when I'm training witnesses, one of there's many things I'm assessing, but one of the top things uh, that is concerning me is what is this person's emotional status? Okay. How do they process information and how quickly do they get emotional particularly in a stressful environment, which is a deposition or a courtroom, and how's that going to impact your testimony? Because if I can solve that problem, I can, I can get rid of a lot of those mistakes that they're making. And then every one of those mistakes leads to dollar signs, right? Mm -hmm. So if you go to the, if we go to the end zone first and work back, right? It's, it's the, it's the money. This is all about money, right? You don't want to lose all your money. Your insurance company doesn't want to lose all their money. The trucking company doesn't want to lose all their money. Well, how are you going to lose all your money? Well, let's take a step back to the 20-yard line. Well, bad, bad, bad depositions, poor, poor witness testimony, right? That's a huge it's factor in how you lose that money. And so that is very, very preventable, but again, requires early intervention and not, and not late intervention. So what do you say to, um, or, or you know, what does it tell you about an owner of a company that embraces your strategies and what you're trying to do, ask you to come alongside them to help them through the process. Um, what does that say to you about that leadership? Um, wise, very, very wise, but also very caring. They care about their company and their employees. I, mm. uh, let me tell you a story. So there's a company in Iowa, there's a trucking company. I'm not gonna tell you who they are. I've been out there, I had, I had a case with them, okay? and worked on this case. And they were very, very pleased with what I did. Then they hired me on another case. And we get along very, very well. Outside of those two cases, this, this CEO has paid me to come to his company, and ready for this? Put every single person in the company through my training because he cares about them. He cares about them. He wants them to know what the industry is up against, what all the tricks and traps are, 
what witnesses go through, and he wants to educate them early and give them some emotional calm that if and when the next accident happens and they may be involved and have to testify, that the CEO cares about them so much is pre-training them to get them ready whenever it happens, and then will bring me and my team in when something does happen to support them. That makes everybody at the company feel better about the company, about the company they're working at, and about how much the CEO cares about his employees. And it gives me the best feeling in, uh, in the world, because let, let me tell you what, Litigate, yeah, next to a terrible healthcare diagnosis like cancer or losing a close friend or family member, litig being sued is right up there on the same level of stress. They've measured this. You can look that up. There's plenty of research on that. Litigation stress research, look that up. And people, people physiologically respond to litigation the same way they would respond to a bad healthcare diagnosis, bad news from your doctor. Or, or bad news about a close friend or loved one. Now, think about that. That's pretty intense emotion, Monty. Okay? And that's a lot of stress and anxiety. And so the companies that are doing the proactive training on these levels we're talking about are very, very wise. And it's an investment into themselves, into the company, into their employees. And it's it's one of the smartest things that you can possibly do. And you know what? Yes, it does come at a cost. It's a drop in the bucket compared to the cost financially and emotionally of litigation. A hundred percent. When you're saying that, my thought was, yes, it comes at a cost, but look at everything else that they're saving and you hit on a few of them, but yeah, there's a lot more that comes along with that. I mean, when you have a, confident labor strategy that, that builds confidence in your employees, they're going to be more successful and the company's going to be more successful. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's uh, great stuff. And those are the things, again, I'm relating it back to insurance. An underwriter can't see those things with the information they ask for to review to give you a rate. So yeah, being able to show the trainings and everything proactively that you're doing, uh, that is where they kind of get a better look at what your identity is instead of trying to measure your culture based on some black and white sheets of paper. Yeah. So they get better rates as a result. Yeah. Um, so that that's, that's fantastic. And so on the flip side, right? So those are some characteristics of uh, someone or, or companies that embrace uh, your, your methods. How, how would you describe or give me some characteristics of a company that you could identify that not the ones that don't know because they don't know, but know about this opportunity, but still decide not to engage in it uh, and just wing it or be traditional as we kind of said earlier. What, what does that look like? Yeah. Um, th and that's, it's, that's the um, cost savings um, traditional kind of cost savings model and reactive model of it's not going to happen to me. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, uh, it's, uh, 
it, it's uh, some companies, some, uh, um, many actually, uh, are not proactive. Um, they're very economically driven at the at the moment. They're not looking to the end zone, Monty. They're thinking about now today. And they don't believe in investing into protection because there's a cost to that. Okay. And maybe they'll never get sued or, you know, whatever. Um, Or if, even if there is a case, they may decide, well, I don't want to pay for, you know, this advanced stuff because the case is, it's going to settle anyway. Um, And that's exactly what the plaintiff reptile folks have done is they know a lot of companies think like that. And those are the targets because that's how they get up 27 to nothing. That's how they get up 27, nothing. Cause they know you're not going to invest <laughs> into the protection. It's easy, easy money for them. It's so easy because they're going up against a defendant. That's not adequately prepared. It's so easy. Right. And so, yeah, yeah, you're saving money today, okay? But in the long run, it's going to cost you a lot more economically in the long run by not investing up front. And then the anxiety, the stress, it's terrible. I mean, I mean, anything in life, boy, when you're not proactively doing something, you know something's out there and you don't do anything on a prevention side, when it bites you, it, it hurts. It mm. really, really hurts. But it's a, it's a, that's also a brain problem. The brain doesn't process. The brain is very reward-based. So, in other words, if I give you $50,000 and in return you give me a new sports car, my brain's like dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. But if I give you $50,000 and you say, I'm going to protect you from the bad guys, well, what? there's kind of no, like the bright, shiny objects not there. There's no dopamine. Right. There's no dopamine, Monty. I need What's my brain needs dopamine because right? I don't, because even though one's, one's a tangible object I'm getting for that 50 grand, and you're telling me, you, you know, I'm going to give you 50 grand. You're telling me I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to protect your assets. My brain just doesn't process that very well, right? That's how the human brain processes things. So it takes a lot of maturity and a lot of open mindedness to really understand the economic risk and value of protection, right? And that's why people hate paying insurance. They hate paying insurance premiums because they're not getting the shiny object to play with. They're paying for protection in case something bad happens. And that's a, that's a big deterrent in this industry. But that type of mindset is exactly what the plaintiff's bar takes advantage of. And they know it. And by, ready for this, Monty? They brag about it. Often it's at everybody, right? Yep. That's what they do. Um, man, this, this is good stuff. And I, I, I think we need to uh, come back for some more more um, episodes. I, I'd love to have you back again. I would. I'd be happy to come back on. We can get into in depth reptile stuff. We can get into nuclear. We. I've got hours and hours and hours and hours of material, and I have my own podcast. So I'll have you on my podcast. We talk more about this stuff. Awesome. But yeah, thank thank you for having me. I hope your audience uh, 
appreciates this. You you can have uh, any of your audience members can uh, contact me uh, at any time. Uh, if you go, uh, our website is courtroomsciences.com. And if you look me up on LinkedIn, LinkedIn's probably the easiest way to find me and get a hold of me. Go to LinkedIn, put in Bill Kanaski. And uh, uh, I think I'm the only, I think I'm the only, because my son is Bill Kanaski the third. My father may pop up. He's in construction, but he's on his way out of that. So I should be a pretty easy find. And I'm, I'm happy to uh, answer any questions for any of your listeners uh, free of charge. Just uh, shoot me an email or whatever. Awesome. And you have a lot of resources available from your website and everything. Yes. And articles, we sure everything we talked about, a bunch of articles and the podcast, Litigation Psychology Podcast on Apple Tunes, Spotify and all the major platforms. <laughs> well, before we, before we go, I've got something that um, I call the tap five and it's five questions I'm going to ask you for and, and your response can be in one word or one sentence um and we'll just kick it off and these these are totally impromptu so i know you're not technically prepared for them but i'm sure you'll be great i love it um so the first question is what is the worst litigation psychology advice that you've ever received or have been given the worst advice yes i've heard a client be given or you specifically like what what is like maybe a strategy or a poor strategy as you're coming up through everything have you heard about that someone else was given yeah yeah um to um again um particularly in the courtroom would be uh to defend yourself instead of attack Mm. most 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 trial attorneys when they go out in the courtroom and they're they're trying the case um they they kind of go into this defensive posture of hey we didn't do anything wrong we're a good company when you need to you need to be attacking your enemy rather than defending so on the flip side then what is the best advice or strategy you've been you've seen or you've given sooner the better proactive 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 because that's how you're going to solve all of these problems that are going to end up costing you a lot of money down the road Awesome. So this is a, this is now we're getting a little tricky. Okay. Who is the greatest UNC Tar Heel athlete of all time? Now, everybody thinks I'm going to say Michael Jordan. <laughs> and I am actually, I, I, I am actually not going to say Michael Jordan. Okay. I'm actually going to go, I'm actually going to go in a different direction here. Um, I'm going to say, um, Hall of Fame NFL linebacker Lawrence Taylor was oh. the best athlete. He played three sports in high school. Uh, he got himself in trouble. <laughs> uh, but as far as pure athlete at the University of North Carolina, and I, that's a tie between him and Julius Peppers, who is another uh, Hall of Fame uh, uh, football player. Michael Jordan was the best basketball player. But if you're talking best athlete, Lawrence Taylor and Julius Peppers uh, would be the two freakish, incredible athletes. For some reason, I don't know why I thought you were going to say Mia Hamm, but no, no, no. She was in my (laughs) chemistry class. I do her homework for. Oh, really? And the other half of the soccer team. Yeah. That's awesome. They put me in charge. (laughs) All right. So next question. 
what advice would you give to your teenage self? If you could go back and give them some sort of preparation, what, what would that be? Learn about money. Mm. Learn about how, learn about how money impacts human decision-making that, yeah. that, you know, I've, I've learned a lot of hard lessons. Um, because I, I, I did it when I was younger. I didn't know how money worked. I'm not talking like personal investing type, but no, I'm talking like how Period. decisions get made in this world because of money. Uh, people uh, make really important decisions because of money. Um, you know, the, the concept of um, greed. I've seen a lot, I've seen people do some pretty, pretty bad things because of, because of money. Really, really bad, bad things. Uh, and I don't want to be that guy. Um, and I tell my teenage and I talk to my teenagers, um, you got to follow the money. You got to understand how money works because a lot of decisions made from your employer, potential employers, the industry you work in are most likely going to be financially based. And if you can learn how the money works, then you can make better decisions and, and really understand how the, how the process works. Good stuff. That's awesome. All right. So number five. In your opinion, who is the greatest all-time professional wrestler? I think I know who you're going to say. Oh, all-time? All-time. Well, I got my fa- I got my favorite. I, I got to give you two. Okay. Professional wrestler, right? Yep. Okay. When I grew up, because I grew up in the 80s, so I grew up watching WWF. Yep. By far, my personal favorite, Ma- Randy Macho Man Savage. Oh, the macho man. Oh yeah. I mean that, that (laughs) Randy, Randy Savage was the, was the, the greatest in in my mind, but in reality on paper, it's Ric Flair. (laughs) That's who I thought you were going to say. That's who I thought you were going to say. Yeah. It's, it's Ric Flair, but, but I grew up, I realized a huge macho man, uh, because he was kind of under Flair and Hulk Hogan and stuff. I'm not a big yeah. Hulk Hogan fan. I did meet Hulk Hogan. We'll talk about that on your next episode that I'm on. Because that's a it's a very it's a hilarious story. I know we're at time, but we'll talk about Hulk. My my interaction with Hulk Hogan uh, in a hotel hallway. You'll like that story. That, I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, I, I'm gonna take you back to WrestleMania six. <laughs> if you recall, Macho Man versus the Ultimate Warrior yeah. career-ending match. Yeah. We've got to say, my guy came out on top. Hope that doesn't hurt your feelings. Uh, you know, but I'm, a big, it is. I'm a fan of just '80s wrestling, '80s early '90s. That's the best. It was, uh, it was a hell of a time, and uh, <laughs> I look, I look back on it with fond memories. All right, Bill, man, I definitely enjoyed it. We're going to do yes. this again. You be well, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to come back uh, really soon. Let me know. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care.